0: last case case number two two dash two two one zero from southern iowa united states versus gary elliott c
1: well i'm worried but (laughs) just another story i could tell my father (laughs) please court yes Opposing counsel? Your Honors, this case arises out of a series of violations of Mr. Elliott's constitutional rights by the Des Moines Police Department. These violations led to the illegal seizure and interrogation of Mr. Elliott without proper Miranda warnings, as well as two illegally obtained warrants to search his property. I'm going to start with the illegal seizure and what we have actually called the de facto arrest that occurred on Mr. Elliott on, Fe- on February 4, 2021. And Lozano tells us that a seizure occurs when an officer, by means of force or authority, has in some way restrained the uh, liberty of a citizen. It is a totality of the circumstances test, and basically we look at would that person feel free to go about their business and disregard the police. So the first thing we're going to have to establish is that there's actually been a seizure of Mr. Elliott. Well, the facts are largely not disputed in this case. As we can see them on RDOC 64-4, our Exhibit D, that being Officer Valentine's body camera. There were other ones that were submitted as well, but this one seemed to capture the most of the uh, events. Three armed police officers descended upon Mr. Elliott, pulled him out of his vehicle, immediately handcuffed him, and began questioning him about his presence there and the presence of any weapons within his vehicle. Now, we could go through the factors that the court has set, but I think we can all agree that at that point in time, as he's cuffed, outside of his vehicle and then taken away from his vehicle, the Mr. Elliott did not feel free to just say, okay, you guys take these cuffs back and I'm going to leave now. He was seized. There's no question in that. So then the question becomes, did the officers have the right to do so? Now, underneath the Terry stop, we acknowledge, as did the district court, that the judges can temporarily uh, handcuff a defendant underneath the Terry stop for the officer's safety or to essentially keep the status quo. But there's got to be a reason to do it. There has to be some reason the officers feel that that person is armed and dangerous or going to cause some sort of a generalized uh, danger to the general public. In this case, that simply wasn't present. What we had is we had the bare assertion that Mr. Elliott had been making some threats and that because he's a felon, he's armed with a weapon. We'll get to why that's counterintuitive here in a moment. That's essentially what they had. At the point in time, they brought him out of the vehicle and patted him down, and then Officer Valentine took his flashlight and went around the vehicle and searched in the windows and found no weapons. At that point in time, even if for that split second they believed he was a risk, that risk is now dissipated. We know him not to be armed. Furthermore, they moved him several feet, if not 10 yards, away from that vehicle. So we know now he has no ar- armament on him, and we know that he has no access to the arms that may be inside the vehicle. At that point in time, he is illegally seized, and not for any reasons uh, the officers have to do so. You don't think there was reasonable suspicion at that point to believe that he posed a threat and may have committed a crime? There may be reasonable suspicion that he, that he had committed a crime, because we do have the reports that uh, he was sending threatening messages and that uh, he, uh, I think they had said at some other time, not necessarily related to this, held a gun to somebody's head and, and uh, some things of that nature. But the issue isn't whether they have reasonable suspicion to be just talking to him at this point, as they do. Our point is that they are exceeding the scope of that by continuing to have him in what is a de facto arrest, being removed from his vehicle and cuffed, as there's clearly no officer safety issue, as we know him not to be armed. Is it so plain there is no officer safety issue? I mean you gotta
0: start off with this this what do we have? Uh, first of all, we have a statement where you'll find him. He was found there. Then we have a statement that says he's threatened to kill people, and we have a statement that says he's armed, right? Now, isn't it isn't it perfectly reasonable to move him away from the car where there might be a weapon? I mean, at this point, nobody's done a complete search of the vehicle, doesn't know what's in there, um, and, and to handcuff him just to make sure that, that he doesn't act upon the threats that are there while they sort out exactly what happened. And, I mean, it wasn't held out there for hours in this condition. So, I mean... Um, how is it i'm just having a hard time with the idea that that all of a sudden this guy is posing absolutely no risk and we're supposed to let him just wander around uh, without uh, uh, anybody uh, trying to preserve the status quo
1: sure i don't think wandering around i mean if you were to wander back to his vehicle of course i think that would have been a furtive movement that would have uh, caused there to be some further need to detain him or wonder what he was doing But the reality was, at that point point in time, he was answering all their questions. uh, We know him not to be armed, and he's removed from the vehicle. He'd have had to go through three armed police officers, all three of which, when you watch the body cam, were significantly larger than him, by the way. He would have had to get through all those people just to get to whatever weapon might be inside that vehicle. And the government points to Kent as sort of this authority that there was a reason to believe that he is armed and dangerous. However, Kent has some very distinctual characteristics we do not have here. First off, in Kent, the officers were told the exact weapon and where it would be located on the person. We don't have anything like that here. The closest statement we have is that because he's a felon, I know he has a weapon. Also in Kent, the officers had personal knowledge of criminal activity by Kent as they had uh, c- conducted a controlled buy on him some months prior. So they knew him and were familiar with him. The officers in this case, there's no testimony in the record that would indicate they were familiar with Mr. Elliott whatsoever. So we believe that even this initial detention exceeded the scope of what is allowed underneath the terry stop. But if we were to look at how this now continues, and, and I would agree, it all happens very quickly. But as this continues, uh, even if we did have reason to initially cuff Mr. Elliott, that very quickly dissipated. And the exceeding that Terry stop uh, was illegal. Now, if we look at uh, what we knew about the crimes they were investigating, we have harassment and potentially a felon in possession of a firearm. Well, the officers had asked him at that point in time if he was harassing Miss Hanan, and he said, no, we were having a conversation. They would searched him for weapons and asked him repeatedly for weapons, if he had weapons. They did not find a weapon, did not find a weapon in his car, and he denied having any weapons. At that point in time, there's no more investigation that needs to be conducted with Mr. Elliott. Now, if the officers wanted to pursue those other charges, they could perhaps go and uh, meet with these ladies and see if there's some text messages on the phone that would indicate there's additional probable cause to effectuate arrest. But what they have at that moment is they have the bare assertion of Ms. Anderson, somewhat of secondhand knowledge, and nothing that is predictive in nature. So at that point in time, Mr. Elliott should have been free to leave, and he wasn't. And here's where we get even more egregious. Where we get even more egregious is these officers begin to then uh, interrogate Mr. Elliott. Now, the state concedes, or the government concedes, that the defendant was in custody for purposes of Miranda. So the fighting issue really becomes whether the officer's questions rose with level of interrogation. Cowan tells us the question. Is an interrogation if it is reasonably likely to elicit incriminating information, or if officers and the officers can ask public safety questions or officer safety related questions, and there's other case law that indicates they can ask to search without accusing the person of a crime, just simply ask to search. United Search versus Tapia Rodriguez says that interrogation is any question that is directly relevant to the substance offense charge. So let's look at some of the questions they asked. If we go to RDOC 64-4, that, again, is Officer Valentine's body cam, officers indicated at 131 that they were going to take the subject into custody. That's why I say that there's absolutely no dispute that he is seized at that point in time. The officers didn't say, we're just going to put some cuffs on him and talk to him. They didn't say we're having a casual encounter. They said we are taking him into custody. This is a custodial interrogation. Next question at 145 is, why would someone be telling us that you have a weapon? We would assert that this question is very similar to the question in Cowan, where the officer asked Mr. Cowan, why do you have keys to a vehicle that is parked outside this apartment when you told us you took a bus here? Now, in that case, the court said that that question was clearly designed to elicit an incriminating response, and it suppressed the response to that question. The officers continued to question Mr. Elliott about his relationship with Ms. Hanan, how long they've been together, if they have a no-contact order all the while the other officers were asking about these weapons if he's armed with any weapon are you sure you don't have any weapon are there any weapons we're going to find in the vehicle over and over and over these questions are designed to elicit incriminating responses to either one the nature of his relationship with miss hanan and if it's harassing in nature or two whether he is a felon and in possession of a firearm at this point, the officer's safety has been secured. There is no reason to ask these questions other than those two incriminating statements. Finally, at 3.30, in response to the question of, am I going to find any guns, knives, or bombs inside the vehicle, that is when Mr. Elliott says, no, but I might have a pot pipe in there. Now, at that point in time, he's been removed from the vehicle. He's been handcuffed for approximately three minutes. He's offered no threat to the officers. There's been no other evidence to indicate a crime is at hand or criminal activity is afoot. He's still in cuffs, and he's surrounded, being hounded by three different officers' questions. This is a custodial interrogation. And if we look at the fact that this is a custodial interrogation, he should have been read as Miranda rights. And because he was not read as Miranda rights, his responses to these questions that were probative in nature to the criminal acts that they were trying to investigate should be suppressed, as should the search and the district court was in error when it found that this consent was given freely, as it clearly was not. So we're asking that this court overturn the district court's decision and find that uh, the defendant's constitutional rights, Mr. Elliott's constitutional rights, were violated by this custodial uh, interrogation what statements without did he, Miranda warning. What statements did he make um, that are not covered by public safety, that it's not covered by um, uh, the Tapia Rodriguez, um, that that were admitted that shouldn't have been? Well, specifically, uh, the nature of his relationship with Ms. Hanan, because she's Max's girlfriend, that statement should not be allowed. Um, but the one that really gets to it is the one that has to do with uh, any guns, knives, bombs, etc., in the vehicle. Can we search it? And the statement that allows him to search, the giving of consent, that was done without uh, without. Uh, it was not freely and voluntarily given, because he was not properly advised of Miranda rights, and he was illegally seized at that you point You don't in time. think that falls under either the public safety exception or the consent to search? It does not, because at that point in time, the officers have been accusing him of committing crimes, and those crimes are firearm-related crimes. So we're not just talking about trying to say, hey, can we search this to make sure everybody's safe? We're talking about can we search this to go find evidence of the crimes we are here to investigate. Okay, and what was his response to that? Did he say yes? Is that all he said? And he just said, "Yeah, go ahead." And I think there might be a pot. Well, how does out. that harm him at trial, though? That he that, is that incriminating that he says yes to a consent to search. It is because they find a firearm inside the vehicle. And at that point in time, he's a felon in possession of a firearm. He's then placed under arrest. That's then used uh, to gain a subsequent warrant later on, which we'll talk about. So I do want to take my attention to the warrants if we could for a moment. There are two warrants. They are found in RDOC 64-6 and 64-7. The first being the USB warrant. Again, we are to look at the four corners of the warrant to determine if it meets probable cause. We assert that the first warrant, the USB warrant, does not on its face make probable cause as there's no independent corroboration of Hanan's statements. Now, one place both the government admittedly and the defense got off track in our briefing was we are arguing back and forth about whether a police report indicated that Miss Anderson had also seen the uh, images herself. That police report is a red herring, because we are look at the four corners of the affidavit. And in the affidavit, it does not state that Miss Anderson ever saw these images. It merely states that she was told about them by Miss Anand. So that's a red herring, and, we, and admittedly, our side got off track there, too. But the point being is, that when we look at the four corners of the affidavit, no independent corroboration of Ms. Anderson, the affidavit does not stand up on its own. Furthermore, we believe we are entitled to a Franks hearing as law enforcement deliberately and recklessly omitted information that it knew. Now, if we look at Chris Thomas's report, the criminal history of Miss Hanan was included in Officer Allen's report. He gets that information in his report from Officer Allen's report. Officer Allen's report was viewed by Detective Bergstrom and noted in the affidavit that he reviewed that report. Therefore, we believe we proved the first element, that he had knowledge of that criminal history, that being theft, other crimes of moral turpitude, and the fact that she was currently had a theft charge pending. Additionally, we believe that if we were to include that information, that she had a criminal history, that that would then impugn her credibility, similar to the case of United States City Hall, as she was the only uncorroborated informant. I'm going to reserve the many minutes.
0: Thank you, Ms. Perez.
2: Good morning. May I please the court? My name is Alexa Perez, and I'm here on behalf of the United States. There are a couple things that I want to um, first correct. Excuse me, with regards to the record. And that is the question regarding um, consent to search Mr. Elliot's vehicle. Um, Judge Strauss, you asked a question about what was the question and what was the incriminating response, and I just want to correct that. Um, and that is in record 64-4 at 320. Uh, Officer Valentine asks Mr. Elliott if there's anything that we need to worry about in the, in the car, guns, knives, drugs, et cetera. Mr. Elliott says no. Um, and then Officer Valentine goes on to ask, are you okay if we just take a quick look and make, make sure everything is kosher in there? And that is when Mr. Elliott says, quote, yeah, I mean, there might be a pot pipe in there or something. Um, so I just wanted to correct that before I begin. Um, moving on to the issue of the suppression of evidence from the February 4th interaction with law enforcement. Um, Mr. Elliott argues that that evidence should have been suppressed because one he was unlawfully seized. two, he was unlawfully interrogated without Miranda warnings, and three, his car was unlawfully searched. But the district court correctly found that Elliot was not unlawfully seized. He was subject to a valid Terry stop, and Elliot was not interrogated, so Miranda warnings were not required. <clears throat> Lastly, the court correctly found that Elliot provided consent to search his vehicle, and even if he didn't, his, vol- his voluntary statements provided probable cause to search. Starting first with the question of um, the illegal seizure, the officers on February 4th had reasonable suspicion to detain Elliot based on Michelle Anderson's 911 call. That call was not anonymous, it reported an ongoing emergency, and was corroborated by law enforcement. <clears throat> During that call, Anderson identified herself. And she also expressed a willingness to meet with officers. She reported an ongoing emergency. She indicated that she personally saw Elliot with a gun and that Elliot had threatened to kill Hannon. During that 911 call, the dispatcher asked, Are you sure he has a gun or are you just assuming? And she says, I'm sure. I'm sure of it. And then goes on to ask Hannon whether or not she reported that a week or two earlier, Mr. Elliot threatened Hannon with a gun with a gun to her head. When the court listens to that call, The court will be able to hear that this was a call that was made under the stress of excitement. They were screaming, the women were talking hurriedly. These women feared for their lives in that instance. And under this court's precedent, that type of reporting of an ongoing emergency carries with it a presumption of reliability. <clears throat> Ms. Anderson also provided detailed information about Elliot that suggested a familiarity with him. She reported his full name, his date of birth, his home address, and that he was a felon. She also reported and provided contemporaneous information about where Mr. Elliot was located, what type of vehicle he was driving, and the precise location where he would be located. Officers then verified that information that Anderson provided during the 911 call, including the description of Elliot's car, the precise location where it would be found, Elliot's name, and his date of birth. While this was not substantial corroboration, less corroboration was required here because Anderson was not anonymous and her report concerned an ongoing emergency. Relying primarily on two cases, Florida versus JL and Alabama versus White, Elliot argues that Anderson's tip was unreliable. But the key difference between those cases and this case is that this was not an anonymous tip. Additionally, Elliot argues that Anderson's report lacked any predictive information to allow law enforcement corroboration. But the corroboration that Elliot argues law enforcement should have done would almost never be possible in an emergency situation, and especially not in this one. Any kind of delay to seek additional information or corroboration could have proved costly to the public safety. The district court therefore correctly found that there was reasonable suspicion to detain Elliot. Moving on next, the question of inter- inter- custodial interrogation. Elliot argues that he was subject to custodial interrogation without Miranda warnings and that therefore any incriminating statements that he made should have been suppressed. The questions that officers asked Elliot on February 4th fall into three categories that is, first, routine identification questions, second, public safety questions. And third, a request to search. None of those lines of questions required officers to provide Elliot with Miranda warnings. I'll focus on the last two. Starting first with the public safety questions. On February 4th, officers asked Elliot if he had a weapon on him or in his car. Based on Anderson's 911 call, that question was reasonably prompted by a concern for the public safety. Officers were responding to a late night call about a man who had threatened two women with a gun and who was an ar- and who was excuse me a convicted felon. Officers were justifiably concerned in that moment about the danger that Elliot posed to the public. This court's precedent under this court's precedent, that question was well within the public safety exception. Next, the officers asked Mr. Elliot for consent to search his vehicle, and as I corrected earlier, Mr. Elliot in response to that question said, quote, Yeah, I mean there might be a pot pipe in the car, end quote. That question was did not require Miranda warnings moving on then to the search of mr. Elliott's car in response to that question as I said he said quote yeah I mean I might have a pot pipe in the car the district court correctly found that Elliot's quote yeah end quote was enough for officers to reasonably believe that the search was consensual but even if his quote yeah end quote was not did not amount to consent Officers had probable cause to search his car after Elliot voluntarily told officers that he might have a marijuana pipe in the car. That question, that answer, was non-responsive to whether or not he can search his car. That was a voluntary statement, and based on that statement, there was a fair probability that the contraband that contraband would be found in Elliot's car. Elliot suggests that officers that there was three officers who were bigger than Mr. Elliot who had. Um, in his brief, he suggests that the officers had their hands on their guns, um, but that's simply not true. There is no indication in the body camera footage from that day that officers had their weapons drawn or their hands on their weapons. <clears throat> the video evidence instead shows that this was a very calm interaction. The interaction before the gun was ultimately found, and he was, in fact, at that point, read as Miranda rights, lasted for about six minutes, and there's no evidence of any police cor- a corrosive pu- police activity during those six minutes to suggest that those statements were anything but voluntary. Under the totality of those circumstances, Elliot's consent was voluntary. Elliot also argues that the search warrants for electronic storage devices and his residence lacked probable cause. He also argues that he was entitled to a Frank's hearing. The district court correctly found that probable cause supported both of those warrants and that Elliot failed to meet the requirements for a Frank's hearing. The affidavit in support of the search warrant for the USB drives relied on Hannon and Anderson's reports to law enforcement that they had viewed child pornography on a USB drive. In challenging the search warrant for the USB drive, Elliot contends that Anderson didn't actually corroborate Hannon's report. Um, According to Elliot, Anderson didn't actually see the images herself and was simply repeating what Hannon told her. But that's simply not true. Anderson stated that she personally viewed the child porn on the devices, and Alverson Grayson's report on page 3 specifically notes that. It states that Hannon showed the contents of the drives to Anderson. Detective Bierstrom's report, or affidavit rather, relied on these reports and also say that, quote, Miss Michelle Anderson and Kylie Hannon have both reported the contents of the USB and storage devices and claim that they cha- contain child pornography, end quote. And that is on page 4 of 64.6. Together, those reports were enough to demonstrate a fair probability that evidence of a crime would be contained on the drives. Probable cause also supports the search warrant for Elliott's residence. Elliot's challenge to this warrant is based largely on his challenges to the search of his car and his claim that the USB warrant lacks probable cause. For the reasons already discussed, those challenges fail. Moving on then to the issue of whether or not Mr. Elliott was entitled to a Frank's hearing. Elliott argues that Detective Bierstrom failed to include information regarding Anderson and Hannon's friendship and failed to include their criminal histories in his affidavits. The district court correctly found that Elliot failed to make a substantial showing needed to obtain a Frank's hearing. As an initial matter, both affidavits did in fact state that Anderson and Hannon were friends in the USB warrant that's on page four and in the warrant for the residence that's on page seven of Detective Bierstrom's affidavits. With respect to the omission of criminal histories, Elliot failed to make the required preliminary showing. He didn't point to any evidence at all that Detective Bierstrom knew that these women had prior criminal histories. Instead, Elliot argues that Detective Bierstrom should have known, but this court has held that what an officer should have known is insufficient to rise to the level to obtain a Frank's hearing. But even if Elliot could have shown that the omission was deliberate or reckless, Elliott failed to show that probable cause would have been defeated if the criminal histories had, in fact, been included in the affidavits. As this court noted in United States v. Scott, probable cause is not defeated by a failure to include an informant's criminal history if that information is at least partly corroborated. And here, the information was corroborated in both search warrants. The USB drive warrant relied on Hannon's report as corroborated by Anderson, and the residential search warrant relied on those reports again, as well as the information obtained on the February 4th um, interaction with law enforcement, and then Detective Beersham's own observations of child porn on the USB drive. Unless the court has any further questions, the government would rely on its brief for the re- remaining issues and respectfully request that the court affirm the district court's order and sentence.
0: Hearing no further questions, thank you, Mr. Carr.
1: I'm going to pick up where we left off with the warrants there. Uh, The issue is that uh, the government continues this ruse that the warrant for the USB drives was corroborated by Ms. Anderson. Well, that might be the case, that's not in the affidavit. And the affidavit is the only thing that matters because the affidavit is the only thing the court has to go off of the issuing magistrate. The issuing magistrate does not know about some other police report that exists in some other file. In the actual affidavit itself, There's no allegation that Ms. Anderson has actually seen the images herself. It is the bare assertion of Ms. Hanan that provides us with the probable cause. Furthermore, we know because we can see the Officer, or I'm sorry, Special Agents Smith's report, that that information, Detective Bergstrom would have reviewed that same information in Officer Allen's report, and he indicates that he reviewed that report in the affidavit. There's absolutely a showing that he had actual knowledge of this criminal history. And had this criminal history been included, it would be similar to the United States v. Hall, and it would have uh, defeated that affidavit's probable cause. So for that reason, Your Honors, we would ask that you overturn the district court's decision.
0: Thank you very much, Mr. Carr. Uh, The case is submitted, argument and briefing has been very helpful, so thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Carr, thank you very much for your willingness to serve on the CJA panel and take this CJA appointment. Um, It's uh, very... um, well, it's actually essential to the administration of justice, and, and the court deeply appreciates your service. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anything? For-